Welcome to Come and Reason with Christian psychiatrist and author Dr. Tim Jennings. Together we will reason through complex issues to find evidence-based answers that harmonize scripture, science, and our life experiences. I'm your Come and Reason host, Charles Mills. I hear about it all the time. God doing things in the Bible that just don't seem to match the meek and lowly character of Jesus. Yet Jesus himself insisted that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, John 14, 9. How do we reconcile the records of God doing what seems to be very ungodly things throughout Scripture? Let's put that question to Dr. Jennings, who joins us via Skype. This program is sponsored by Come and Reason Ministries. Dr. Jennings, help us out. Why is God doing such ungodly things in the Bible? So very interesting how you opened this, Charles, because you actually did start about Jesus being a representation of God. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, and then you contrasted that with the idea of God doing something ungodly. Yes. The question is, does God do something ungodly? Well, the first is, well, what version of God do you believe God to be? Hmm. There are many versions of God that do quite horrible things, and those horrible things are exactly the kind of God those people believe their God is. Yes, yes. Okay, yes. but they're not the kind of God Jesus revealed God to be. So ungodly, in the way you framed it, was correct, contrary to the character of Christ, different than what Jesus revealed. And then the next question is, is there ever an example of God doing something that's contrary to what Christ revealed? And I would suggest there never is. There's only misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. There's only people's distorted views because they fail to understand the situation or the context properly. For instance, I'll give you a contextual situation where somebody could make allegations falsely. Consider this scenario. A man runs into a church service and rips a woman's blouse open, exposing her breasts. Mm -hmm. It's fact. It happened. You could take that fact and allege that this was a pervert, that this was some sexual assault assailant, until you get the more detailed facts that this woman was having a heart attack, and that was an EMT, and he came in with a defibrillator and saved her life. Wow. Okay, so just the fact that a certain situation happened without all the details, it can be quite Distorted. In the Old Testament, it's similar situations. People will take and lift texts or phrases or descriptions or events like the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah or the plagues of Egypt, and they will take those to create a construct of a punishing or ungodly God, unchristlike God. And none of that is true. If you actually understand the context, it's always God acting in love therapeutically to save and to heal. Well, you know, why didn't the Bible include the context? Why does it leave us hanging like that? The Bible did include the context. It's just that people don't read widely. Uh, If you read the Bible as a whole, it's all there. But what happens is people will pick a verse here and pick a verse there and pick a section here and pick a section there. And they put their little here and a little there together to create a distorted. And they'll claim it's from the Bible, but they're not reading it as a whole. The scripture has to be read as a whole where all the various parts connect together to the grand central theme of the controversy over God's trustworthiness, which began with Lucifer's rebellion in heaven and spread to this earth. And after Adam and Eve sinned, the context of the Old Testament is one single thread, and that is Messiah was promised, Genesis 3, and without Messiah, no human being survives. We all die. We're all lost. Only saved through the Messiah, the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. 
and the Old Testament is Satan working to stop God from bringing Messiah and God working to keep open avenue for Messiah to come. That is the threat. If you lose sight of that and you focus simply on the situation happening in the moment outside of the bigger landscape of the battle to bring Messiah, then you'll misunderstand what's happening. Okay, well, Dr. Jennings, I would like for you to landscape some things here for me. Here's what I've heard people talking about. People are saying, why on earth did God ask the children of Israel to go into a village and kill everyone, including women and children? Why would he do that? And that's a great example of lifting something out of context and making it appear to say something it doesn't. If you read the entire story, God said to them that he was going to send the hornet and the pestilence before the people of Israel. And the people who lived in the land would little by little vacate the land. And as the land was vacated, then little by little, the Israelites would take it over and there would never be a conflict or a battle or any of this killing that you see going on. But the children of Israel insisted on going to battle. And so God said, well, if you're going to insist on doing it your way, and if I don't bring Messiah, no human is safe. So I'm working with Abraham's descendants to bring Messiah. If you're going to do it your way and not allow my way to be worked out where no war, no conflict happens, then I want the least number of people traumatized by war, killed by war, and damaged by war, both the people who are killed and their families, but also the soldiers who do the killing. There's PTSD and damage to the minds of those people. So if you insist on doing it, then do it in one generation and get it done. Go in and wipe them all out so that we will have the fewest total numbers of people damaged by war, and then we will have peace, and we won't have generation after generation after generation for thousands of years of conflict going on, and they didn't follow that instruction. And so what we've had instead is we've had 4,000 years of perpetual war in that part of the world where every generation is being damaged. So both scenarios, God's original plan, and then his meeting them where they insisted, and he tells them to wipe them all out then, were both acts of love and mercy to prevent and limit the damage that would happen to people. Mm. All right, here's another example I hear a lot about, and that is the guy who was marching along beside the Ark of the Covenant when it was being moved from one place to another. And God had said, don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. And this guy saw the Ark of the Covenant beginning to tilt. It was going to fall down. And he almost instinctively reached up to help it, keep it from falling on the ground because he loved the Ark of the Covenant, and he died. What's up with that? What kind of death did he die? Did he die the death of sin, that he will never have salvation? Or did he die the same death that Daniel died? And then we read in Daniel that God tells him, you're going to rest in the grave, and then you're going to be resurrected in the resurrection of the righteous. Hmm. Which death did this person die? The eternal death from which there's no resurrection or the death from which there's resurrection? Resurrection death, yes. This isn't the death that's a punishment for sin. The punishment for sin is the death that the Bible refers to in Revelation 20 as the second death. This is the same death that every human being since Adam has died that has died. It is this simple death of sleep. Now, why did God put him to sleep at that moment? Why did he have that first death experience? Well, the contextually, what was going on there? Again, what is God working to achieve? God is working since Genesis 3 to bring about Messiah. Mm -hmm. And the people of Israel are under a blatant attack 
by Satan to destroy them as a people or corrupt their hearts and minds so much that they're hardened against God and won't work with him. And the reason Satan focuses his attention, and this is why the Bible focuses our attention on the children of Abraham, but not all the children of Abraham. We don't focus on Esau's kids or Ishmael's kids. We focus on Isaac's kids, and we then focus on Jacob's kids. Why? Because it's through that branch of the human family through which Messiah comes. We don't focus on the Chinese people. Why? Because Messiah is not coming through the Chinese people. It's not that God doesn't love them. He wants them to be saved. But this is why we focus where we focus in Scripture. And this is why Satan is assaulting and attacking the people of Israel. And so at this point in time, why was the ark tilting? The ark was tilting because the Israelites were not actually caring for it in the way God had instructed them to care for it. They were treating it frivolously, and this was all theater designed to act out the plan of salvation. And the theater has symbols, and the symbols are teaching truths. And we want to contrast Uzzah touching the ark, being put to sleep, something he wasn't supposed to do. David goes in at a different time to the sanctuary and takes the showbread that only the priests were to eat, and he eats it and gives it to his men, and they were not harmed. How come this guy can touch the ark, but David can't? Because if you understand the symbols and what they're trying to teach, then you understand that the bread represents the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the, the manna, the bread that's come down from heaven. So the showbread represents Jesus, and David and his men taking it are partaking of Christ, and thus they live. But the ark of the covenant in the system represents unity with God, back total unity in God's presence, and reaching out and touching it yourself says, I'm going to go back into God's presence without Jesus. I'm doing it on my own. And there is no life without the Messiah. So the the theater says, well, if you're going to touch it and you're going to say, I'm going into God's presence on my own without Messiah, there is no life there. You can't survive or heal your own sin sickness. So God graciously puts him to sleep. We don't know that his heart was actually rebellious. He may have been ignorant of the dynamics going on there, and he will come up in the right resurrection. But that's why he was put to sleep and David wasn't. Okay, now let's move from the past to the present. A lot of people say, why didn't God help me when my child was sick? Why did God, who made all these promises about his presence in our lives, help me in the car accident or when I lost my job? Where was God? He's acting ungodly. What do you say to that? Well, uh, first off, again, context. What do you understand the context of your life to be? Were you born in sinless Eden? No. Or were you born in a war zone? Yes, yes. If you're born in a war zone, is it shock you to find out that in a war zone there's collateral damage? Mm -hmm. Not only is there collateral damage, but you're born in a war zone with an enemy who hates you and wants to kill you. Does it surprise you that the enemy of God seeks to harm you and your family? So in this world, all nature groans under the weight of sin. We have all types of catastrophes and painful things that are happening in this world because there are two antagonistic principles at war. Further, what is your belief about what happens to you and your family if you suffer from no cancers or no uh, uh, assaults or no uh, hardships? What happens if you have the idyllic earthly life with everything perfectly as well as you could personally plan it on this planet? What happens to you and your family 100 years from now, 150 years? Where will you personally be and your children be 300 years from now? In other words, from God's perspective, every human being has a terminal condition and we're all dying. We're aging and we're dying. 
God did not create human beings to live a few hundred years and then die. He created human beings to live eternally. And therefore, his focus is on bringing them back into a saving relationship with him where he can restore them to eternal life. And so from God's perspective, if somebody dies at age 15 in a car wreck or they die at 115 from old age and they don't know him, they both have died young. Mm-hmm. But if the one at 15 knows God and they come up in the resurrection and they will have eternal life and live for billions and billions in all eternity future, but the one at 115 never knew God and rejected God, then it's the 115-year-old that died young and the 15-year-old, according to Jesus, they don't die. He says even though they die, they will live again. They actually haven't died yet. They're just in a state of sleep waiting for resurrection. Mm-hmm. So context really matters in how we understand these things. And that just underlines what you've been telling us all along, that that context comes from studying, reading, praying, contemplating, meditating on God's Word. We need to really educate ourselves to that flow you talk about, to that movement of history. And then all of these individual ripples, all of these individual moments will make more sense. Am I right in saying that? That's exactly right. And if we don't understand this larger context of the warfare between good and evil, Christ and Satan, then we get caught up into the immediate suffering and miss really what's happening. Be like somebody believing a doctor is harming somebody by doing an appendectomy on somebody with appendicitis. He's cutting into them with a sharp instrument. No, he's saving their life. If you don't understand the context, it could look bad while it's actually good. This program is sponsored by Common Reason Ministries, and they have a website, commonreason.com. I invite you to stop by there, look at the resources that are available. Dr. Jennings' books are there, the sharing tracks. You can see his television programs. He has a Bible study listed there. You can just keep up to date on things with that Bible study, all at comeandreason.com. Dr. Jennings, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Charles. And listener, until next time, this is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, wishing you God's presence in your life. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for spending time with us today. To continue the journey, I urge you to visit comeandreason.com. Here you'll find many excellent resources to help you gain a deeper understanding of the God we all love and serve. That's at comeandreason.com. This is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, inviting you to join us the next time we come and reason together. Together.